Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, and we are going to begin with verse 36. Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, beginning with verse 36. You can find this in your bulletin on page 5 or 6. Gospel of Luke, if you would stand with me as we read God's Word together. Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verse 36. This is God's Word. One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. You would lift your hands with me as we come to God in prayer. Father, we pray that you would add a blessing to the reading and the preaching of your word. We pray that you would help us not just be hearers, but also doers of your word. We pray, Father, that you would energize us to live in light of the gospel as we leave this place and to be captivated and activated by your love. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. David Copperfield is a magician. To be more accurate, he's an illusionist. Essentially, what what David Copperfield does is this. He makes things appear to be what they are not in order to impress a crowd. He makes you think that what you're seeing is real, but it's not. He's just good at hiding what is really happening. 
In his acts, he performs certain tricks. For example, he can make it appear as if he's levitating, just, just floating up, up, up in the air in the middle of a stage. He can make things appear seemingly out of nowhere. He has made other big things disappear years ago. He made it appear as if he caused the Statue of Liberty to just disappear. Copperfield has made a living on being an illusionist. But there have been times in his career where the illusion didn't work. Once while rehearsing an act that he had, an illusion that he called Escape from Death, Copperfield was dropped into a, a tank of water and he was, he was shackled and, and handcuffed. And after a minute and 20 seconds, he, he, he got entangled in, in the chains and, he, and he, he couldn't get out and he started banging on the glass and then they pulled him out and he was hyperventilating and going into shock and they rushed him to the hospital. The illusion didn't work. There was another time where Copperfield was doing rope tricks in Memphis and he accidentally cut off the tip of his finger and they had to rush him to the hospital. There were times where the illusion didn't work. There were times where both David Copperfield and his audience were confronted with reality that revealed the illusory nature of what he was doing. Now, I don't think we have any David Copperfields in the room this morning. But I'm pretty sure that all of us are familiar with what it's like to be an illusionist. I'm sure that all of us know something about being an illusionist. We all know how to make things appear to be what they are not in order to impress a crowd. We make others think that what they are seeing is real, but it's not. We're just really good at hiding what's really going on. In our acts, we we can make it to appear as if we're, we're floating, we're rising in service, and, and we're rising in love, and we're rising in our marriage, but it's all an illusion. We create the illusion. We can make success and achievement appear seemingly out of nowhere. We can make it appear as if we have an ordered and happy home, can't we? We can make it appear as if we're enjoying the frantic schedules that we keep, can't we? we? We can make it appear as if we're truly amazing people. And the, uh, the, 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 the bumps in the road, are, they're, just, they're just momentary glitches in a life that is decorated with, with achievement and success. The dark moments or the breakdowns that we may experience are far and few between. We, we create the illusion. We create the illusion that other big things have disappeared. We create the illusion that our failures and, and weaknesses have disappeared. We create the illusion that our sins and, and their consequences have disappeared. We create the illusion and we build our lives off of creating illusions. And a lot of times, we get so accustomed to selling the illusion that we actually begin to believe the lies that we tell ourselves. We actually start to believe it. But there are times when we come face to face with reality. There are times when the illusions don't work. 
when we can't maintain the illusion of success and achievement. There are times when we're not floating higher and higher, we're sinking deeper and deeper into sin and despair. There are times when the illusion does not, does not work. There are times where we can't make the failures or the sadness disappear. This is what we're confronted with when we come face to face with the reality of who we really are and what we're really like and what we have really done. The illusions disappear and we're face to face with reality. And when you're faced with the unpleasant, disorienting, and downright terrifying reality of who you are, what you've done, and, and what the results are, you have two choices. You can either scramble to maintain that exhausting life of illusion, or you can turn in hopes that the God of heaven is the God of grace. And in our text for this morning, Jesus is going to teach us about, about grace in the kingdom of God as we get into the story of, of, of two characters that Jesus is going to engage. One is a master illusionist, and one has come face to face with reality, has given up on all the illusions, and is hoping purely in grace. We're talking about life in the kingdom in this series. And I think you can make the case that there is nothing more essential to life in the kingdom than grace. But you know, oftentimes grace is one of those words, you know, to borrow a line from Montoya, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. We use the word grace, but we use it and we reveal that we don't really understand what grace is. We like the grace that pardons but does not compel. We like the grace that says no condemnation and we think that that can turn into a life of no activation. Grace is a powerful thing. To be more accurate, grace reveals a powerful relationship to the living God. Grace is no dull, inactive thing. It gets a hold of your soul and completely revolutionizes who you are and how you are. And so this morning, we're going to get into our text, and we're going to approach this text through two points. We're going to see that grace captivates and grace activates. So let's look at our first point. Grace captivates. Now, I don't think it's any surprise to anyone that Jesus in his day, in his earthly life, Jesus overturned a lot of taboos of his day. And in this chapter that we're situated in, in this chapter, the walk up to this chapter is a series of taboos that Jesus overturns. He, he reaches out to those who were marginalized. He reaches out to one who was racially marginalized in verses one through 10. He ministers to a woman who had lost her son. She was a poor widow now, defenseless in her culture. He raises her son from the dead in verses 11 through 17. He reaches out to one who is religiously marginalized. And now in our text for this morning, one who was morally marginalized. Jesus overturns the taboos. And it's as if we drop right into this scene when you read 
verse 36. There's not much lead up. We just drop into this scene where Jesus is at a banquet. He's at a dinner table once again. Jesus was always at the table. He was always doing ministry around the table with people in that place of intimacy. Connecting with people at the table. He's at a table. And he's being, he's being uh, invited by a Pharisee named Simon. And in those days, when, when someone of means had a banquet like this, their, their houses, it wasn't like a private dinner party that we have these days. It was a semi-public event where people from the outside who weren't specifically invited could stand around and, and listen to the, to the conversation that was going on. It was, it was part of their practice that, that people could come around and learn. It was sort of like a lecture format at times. And they would invite honored guests to come in and have a meal. And on this occasion, Jesus is supposed to be the honored guest. But as we'll see later, there wasn't much honor being shown by his host. And they're sitting around this table, but better said, they're reclining around this table. At this time, people would, would lean in on their elbows and they would recline with their feet behind them and they would, they would have the dinner. These banquets have this public accessibility. And then in verse 37, we get the twist in the story. It's a shocking twist. And Luke favors this language, and behold. If you read through Luke's gospel, he always pulls this out to reveal a shocking thing. And behold. And in this text, the shock is about someone who walks through the doors to enter into this, this scene. And behold, the text says, a woman of the city who was a sinner. You got to picture the scene. It's just a nice, fancy get-together. People are in there in their decorum. They're, they're, they're enjoying one another's company. And all of a sudden, this woman who was a notorious sinner, enters into the presence of these guests and every eye turns to her. Everybody in the place, save one, is scandalized by her. Everyone is immediately uncomfortable with her. She walks through the doors and instantly her presence provokes discomfort because she's one of those people. She had a reputation for living a life of immorality, and, and many scholars believe that she was a, a prostitute. She had a reputation. And perhaps, some scholars have noted, the real shock is not just that this is an immoral woman who's entering into the presence of these religious gurus. It's not just that she is perhaps a prostitute. But could it be that maybe some of the men in that room were actually her clientele? Everyone is scandalized, save one. Everyone's sweating bullets. What's about to happen? She shouldn't be here. We're trying to talk about God. She shouldn't be here. We're trying to talk about God's redemption. She shouldn't be here. We're, talk we're chopping theology. She shouldn't be here. But here she is. 
the uncomfortable presence of the other. But what would have made her even enter the place? It seems that the unspoken assumption of the text is that she had had a prior experience either with the teaching of Jesus or the the person of Jesus before this scene. Either the teaching of Jesus or, or she had an encounter with Jesus that led her to conclude that Jesus would receive her. That that Jesus would welcome her into his presence. That that Jesus was someone that she could approach. David said back in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And there is something that those who are broken and lowly and contrite of heart understand. There's something that they see in Jesus that is compelling, that draws them. The lowly and contrite know that when nobody else is remembering, when the path is frightening, when strength is fading, when comfort is fleeting, when resources are failing, when friends are withdrawing, when Satan is tempting, that's when God is working and Christ is redeeming and the Spirit is sustaining and renewing. In verse 34, right before our our passage, the text says this. Jesus was being criticized. And Jesus is responding to the criticism. The text says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him. A glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus had a reputation for being a friend of sinners. And so those who had a reputation for being sinners knew that they could come to the one who had a reputation for being a friend of sinners. It's automatically challenging us. Do we have a reputation for being friends of sinners? Do we we represent the presence of Jesus in our place? She was captivated. By Jesus, not just drawn, captivated. Something about him, something he said, the way he was, the crowd that he had hanging around him drew her. It's something that we need to take notice of in our very entitled age. In an age where people are reluctant to to acknowledge their neediness, in an age where people are are, are not prone to acknowledge their sin and their inner corruption and their wayward thoughts and their broken hearts, it is hard to really see Jesus. But those who are Christians are supposed to be those who live with contrite hearts, who know their need and find Jesus to be captivating. She's captivated. So she shows up in that house where Jesus is reclining at the table. And she plans to come and anoint his head. This was a practice of Jewish custom, anointing of head. Anointing of feet was not necessarily a a, a widespread practice. But something happens in verse 38. Look at it. When she walks around to the place 
where Jesus is reclining. She walks into the room. Her eyes find Jesus. And she walks around to him. And she doesn't even barely get to his feet before she begins to unravel. She begins to unravel. These tears of hers, there is so much in these tears. There's love and gratitude in these tears. There's contrition in these tears. When she gets to Jesus, she's reminded. She knows who she is. She knows what she has done. She knows what she is like and she's not falling for any illusions. She knows the trail of bad decisions that is behind her. But all of that is put together with the goodness of the one who is before her. She is unraveling. She doesn't even get to her plan to anoint Jesus' head. She is leaking from her eyes. Her eyes are a river. And as the tears are flowing and all of the eyes of hatred are looking on her, the scene that she's causing, these tears come down from her eyes off of her cheeks and they begin to fall. And they fall on the feet of Jesus. And all of a sudden, there's a chain reaction that begins where she bends down to his feet to wipe the tears. It's just instantaneous. She lets her hair down. She doesn't have anything to wipe his feet with. So she lets her hair down. A most intimate act in this culture. This was something that you would only do in the bedroom in this culture. It was a sign of extraordinary intimacy. She lets her hair down and she begins to wipe his feet as she continues to weep and she wipes his feet. And then while she's down there, her heart is so overwhelmed with love, the conjunction between who she is and who he is and what he has done for her, what he has communicated to her about his welcome. Because you have to remember, everyone else in the room is recoiling except for Jesus. Jesus doesn't recoil from sinners. Jesus doesn't withdraw from broken people. He stays still in an act of extraordinary grace. And she begins to kiss his feet. And then a powerful image that I want you to see. While she's down kissing his feet, she turns. She had brought this alabaster flask of perfumed oil. And she turns and she breaks the neck of this flask. And all of a sudden, the scent begins to fill the room. And everyone is catching a savor of how grace can get a hold of a person. Everyone in the room is smelling it as she anoints his feet, as she demonstrates this act of love. And we begin to see that those who are touched by grace leave the scent of grace for everyone around them. Well, when you've really tasted of the grace of God and Jesus, your life begins to give off a scent of love. Your life gives off the scent of patience when you're hurt. Your life gives off the scent of forgiveness when you're wronged. Grace gives off a scent. Others can smell it. But then we get thicker into the drama in verse 39. 
Look at the text. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. I want you to note two things. First, Simon said this to himself. Don't miss that. He didn't say this out loud. But the second thing I want you to see is that Simon had a particular assumption about the way that Jesus ought to relate to sinners. He had a particular assumption about the way that God related to sinners. But here Jesus is essentially responding to Simon. I want you to see that Jesus responds to his inner thoughts. I want you to see the irony. It's as if Jesus is, is saying to Simon, not only do I know who and what type of person she is, but I know who and what type of person you are. But the more important thing that I want you to see, Simon, is that you need to understand who and what type of savior I am. This is what this passage is all about. Do you understand who and what type of savior I am? Do you know that I'm the type to leave the 99 to go after the one? Do you know that I'm the type to engrave the names of sinners on the palms of my hands? Do you know that I'm the type to embrace the prodigal in love? Do you know that I'm the type to receive notorious sinners because I'm a glorious savior? Do you know that I'm the type to oppose the proud but give grace to the humble? Do you know that I'm the type who, 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 doesn't, who doesn't leave people in their despair? I'm the, I'm the type that doesn't despise the broken and contrite of heart. I'm the type that doesn't tire of you when you tire of yourself. I'm the type that doesn't give up on you when you give up on yourself. I'm the type that doesn't despise you even when you loathe yourself. Amen. I'm the type to touch the untouchable and love the unlovable and forgive the unforgivable and welcome the undesirable and save those who are otherwise unsavable. Do you know who and what type of savior I am, Simon? Now, Simon, I have something to say to you. All of that, I believe, is wound up in that phrase. In that moment, Simon is confronted with the reality. This prophet that he has just downgraded in his mind is now responding to his thoughts. Maybe he thought it was a coincidence, maybe. But Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he says, say it, teacher. I don't know how he said that. Did he say, say it, teacher? Or did he say, say it, teacher? I don't know. But then Jesus begins to tell him a parable. He tells him a parable, and he talks about a moneylender who has two debtors. One owes him 50 denarii and the other 500 denarii. But the shock of the parable is that the moneylender forgives both. And then he just asks a simple question. Which one will love him more? 
And he says, I suppose the one who owed him 500. And he said, that's right, Simon, good job. Do you see this woman? Do you? And this brings us to our second point. Grace activates. Look at verse 44. Jesus says, do you see this woman? You all claim to know and love God. You all claim to be about the great commandment. To, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. But I walked in here and you gave me no water for my feet. You had me in your house, but you were not a host. You had me in your house, but you were not hospitable. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. When I came in here, you gave me no kiss on my forehead as a sign of, of respect and mutuality and greeting. No, but she has kissed my feet. Do you see that when grace gets a hold of someone, it makes them active, active in their response to Jesus? Active in their life of spirituality. Grace does not lie dormant within people. In fact, there's no such thing as grace. All there is is the Lord Jesus and the way that he relates to broken people. And the point is this. I don't think that Jesus is just trying to line out this delineation of the fact that there are greater and lesser degrees of sin. I don't think that's the point. This isn't, this isn't the point of all, at all. The point is not that Simon is a lesser sinner. It doesn't matter if you're drowning in 50 feet of water or 500 feet of water. If someone pulls you out of the water, you say thank you. If someone pulls you out, then you give, you give gratitude. You respond, it changes you. And the question is, if you have not been changed, you will not love. If you do not taste grace and forgiveness in the gospel, you will not love. In other words, let me put it a different way. If you cannot see any traces of love in you, then it's a question of whether or not you have really experienced the forgiveness of Jesus. This is where he's leading him. Grace activates. Usually when a priest in the temple would pronounce forgiveness over someone, there would be a sacrifice involved. But here Jesus announces forgiveness with no, no sacrifice to see. How could he do that? This is part of what prompts the question, how can, how can he forgive sins? What's going on here? What they couldn't see is that it wouldn't be long. It wouldn't be long before Jesus would enter in to the final stage of his, his ministry. It wouldn't be long before Luke would say, behold the Lamb of God. It wouldn't be long before tears fell from his face to hit the ground of Gethsemane as he, as he executed his high priestly ministry on behalf of his people. It wouldn't be long before he would find himself at the feet of his disciples, giving them an audio-visual illustration of the way that he would cleanse them from their sins. It wouldn't be long before Jesus would anoint his people with his spirit to help them to do his work for his glory. 
It wouldn't be long. The sacrifice was forthcoming. And it was a sacrifice that would allow for the, lo- the most lost, the most broken, the most despicable and, and, and corrupt people to find themselves in the presence of Jesus. Something that I think that's powerful here is there's a liturgical structure. Look at this. Jesus is at a, a, in a house at a table. A woman comes in. She offers her oil to Jesus. She mourns her sins. Jesus teaches Simon about his duties as a host. He pronounces the woman forgiven, and then he sends her away in peace. It's, it's all there. Gathering at a table. You see this? Offering, mourning, teaching, absolution, benediction. This scene should give us a sense of the way that our worship should be in this place. It gives us a a sense of the way that that we ought to relate to other people. And let me close by saying this, closing illustration, and I want to draw you into this, Reverend Dr. Erwin Ince, on this day of your installation. One day I was on a road trip. I was driving down the road, and I was driving up, and I, I saw orange cones, and there was a, a, a gas tanker truck that was on the side of the road who had run out of gas. You see, a, a gas tanker has two tanks. One tank is for all of the deliveries that it's going to make to give gas to other people and to other places, and another tank for itself. And it is the height of irony to see a gas tanker out of gas on the side of the road. Let me say this. We need the very grace that we aim to give to the people around us. Don't let your tank run out, Doc. Every morning, new mercies. And every challenge, sufficient grace. Let us all, as God's ministers, eat the same bread that we seek to give away, as Augustine said it. We need to make sure that we have our tanks full. Many of us are the exact opposite of this tanker. The tank is full, but we're driving around with an empty barrel in the back. We show lots of of grace for ourselves, but we ain't got no grace for anybody else. Others of us are the flip. We show grace to everybody out there, but we don't show grace to people in our homes. Or we don't show grace to ourselves. We don't live in grace. Do you feel like you have to work and work and work and perform and no one's ever allowed to help you? No, 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 I'm good, I'm good. No, no, don't worry about me. How can I help you? It takes grace to receive it. Family, those who have been forgiven much love much. And if we want to see our love for God and our love for people expand, Doc, if you want to see your love for, for, for people in the difficulties of ministry to remain robust and buoyant and fiery, heat and light, we must remember that we have been forgiven much. We don't need to spin it. We don't need to live under illusions, family. Illusions are not necessary. Illusions are one of the greatest barriers to other people seeing what the grace of God is all about. God welcomes sinners Let that be the sweet aroma that arises from this community. Let this be the sweet aroma, the fragrance that rises up from our Institute for Cross-Cultural Mission. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us in the gospel.
Thank you for Jesus. God, we thank you that you are like you are. It could have been otherwise. Lord, it could have been only three chapters in the Bible. The fourth chapter saying, then God blew everybody up and lived happily ever after the end. But there's a story of redeeming love that runs all the way to a new heaven and a new earth. And for this, we are grateful. Lord, we pray that our lives and our words and our relationships would reveal us to be the most grateful people on the planet. Help us to find genuine contrition for our sins and to not minimize them through illusions, to try and make them disappear, but to own them, to come face to face with the reality that though we're great sinners, Christ is a great savior. Though there is great sin in me, there's greater grace in God. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to taste this grace for ourselves. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.